Hi, I'm Frederick County Executive Jan Gardner, and you're listening to Mako's newest local news platform, the Conduit Street Podcast. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Conduit Street Podcast. This is Kevin Canale here, as always, with my co-host, Michael Sanderson. Michael, it was a long night last night. This special episode is all about the primary election, which was obviously held yesterday. How are you holding up today? I'm okay. I'm, I'm caffeinated. I'm trying to make it through, but uh, we wanted to we wanted to do this this special pod, so so I'm in. I'm in. Yeah, you know, we uh, we said we were going to do it. We're here to do it. Uh, it was an exciting night. We told you in our last episode of the podcast that we were going to have a very interesting primary election. Well, I think we undersold that to say <laughs> the least, Michael. Yeah, I mean, we, we have two county executive races that are essentially too close to call. We have three committee chairs in the General Assembly that have been unseated, uh, one of which I don't think anyone saw coming. I know you and I did not. Right. And we have a bunch of changes in direction in counties. And I think the goal today, we could go through all of the numbers. We could go through every race. If you want that information, it's on our blog. And we also sent out a special push today that had all the numbers, all the races, the breakdowns there. But Michael, I think the goal today is that we're going to go over some of the interesting races, some of the races where we'll see some changes in directions, perhaps, and then maybe some surprises and, and upsets in some races in the General Assembly, particularly. Yeah, I, I think you know this is this is ripe topic for for punditry and for you know the analysts to start sharpening their pencils and go through and say, okay, you know, what does this mean and what does this tell us about the electorate or about Maryland and so forth? I, I'm not sure that you and I are going to be on the cutting edge of that necessarily. But I mean, we we know you know just about all the people that we're talking about today. Uh, we've had a chance to to see their message for whether it's how they would approach county government or what the vision would be in the general assembly or or the you know the candidates running for governor. So all that bundled together, you get a big flavor of that in the primary. And uh, it's uh, you know winds of change are definitely upon us uh, at a lot of levels. All right, so let's start with sort of how we led up to the primary from where we left our last episode of the podcast. So we recorded last week and on Friday, I think Friday night, we heard some information trickling out that there was a state computer glitch at the MVA. This had to do with the self-service machine. So if you went into the MVA and you wanted to change your party affiliation or update your address, you can do that there. The problem was uh, people did that, and that information never made it to the State Board of Elections. So at first we heard it was about 20,000 people affected, Michael? Yeah, the first first wave, which we heard over the weekend, was there was – and that's a meaningful sliver. A if you've got, you've got eighteen or 20,000 people who, who entered information, thought that they were done with that process, and now they believed, okay, now I'm registered to vote at that new address or when I go and request – uh, a, a, you know, a primary ballot from the new party I'm registered with. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be on the list that way, thinking that this might be 
19,000 people was a pretty big deal at the start of this week. And I'm out, I know, you know, we here at Mako, we're talking about our coverage and analysis and preparation. And one of the things we were talking about is, oh boy, 18,000 people who are going to have to get a provisional ballot and go through some extra hoops to vote. That looks like it'll be a meaningful wrinkle. Yeah, certainly, you know, 18, 20,000 people, that, that's <laughs> certainly a meaningful wrinkle. Well, then it got worse. Then we found out late weekend or into Monday that this was going to affect 80,000 voters across the state. So four times as many as was originally uh, thought. And that becomes much more of an issue. Now, I remember on the last episode, you and I were talking about elections being a fundamental piece of county government, right? Right, right? And this was a state computer glitch. I think that's fair to say. And thankfully counties were able to provide enough provisional ballots to these 80,000 voters or however many of them showed up uh, to vote, and they had to vote by provisional ballot, which essentially means they give you a ballot, you fill out some information. It doesn't take much longer than it would take if you were going to vote regularly, but then those ballots are put to the side and they're counted later where uh, you know an election judge will decide whether or not that ballot is valid. So it was up to the local governments, to the local boards of elections, to make sure that they didn't run out of these ballots, right. that they had enough staff, and that they were well-trained to, to teach voters how to do this. Because when you walk into a polling place and they say, we don't have your name, I would imagine that some people might panic and get upset. <laughs> or, or turn around and leave. Correct. I mean, all those things you don't want to have happen. I mean, someone who's cleared off the time to participate in the process, <laughs> you don't want you don't want her to be turned away. So right. so I think, I mean, fortunately, I mean, this is where you were going with, this is about public service and it's about maintaining government at the level we expect and deserve. Okay, so if you walked into a polling place and your data hadn't been received by the election board, you still got to vote. Your vote's going to count. And, I mean, that's a challenge at every level, but part of it is is just voter education. So, so we had that the, – the statewide glitch, the, the county saved the day. The local boards were able to make that process easy for the folks who didn't have their name on the rolls when they walked in. Then we had a few polls in Baltimore City uh, that did not open on time. So, Michael – we're walking around pacing, waiting for these results to come out. Then we find out eight o'clock's the magic hour yeah. on Tuesday night because that's when the polls are going to close. Right. And then the, the you know, state board of elections website starts churning out stuff, and you can start hearing chatter through social media and telephone and all these sorts of things going on. But uh, then they announce, well, we've got a few a few polling place you know a few polling places in the city that are going to stay open until nine, and so. A reasonable decision. Mm-hmm. We're going to withhold everything until 9 p.m. Everything's embargoed until then. So, so, so we're waiting around. We get, we're hitting refresh on the browser, right, we're trying right. to get those the raw data. The furious in. F5. Right. right. <laughs> Find out it's going to be nine. So it's just the excruciating wait is even longer. But then nine o'clock rolls around, and let's talk about some results. So yeah. number one, the Democrats have elected a nominee for governor. Larry Hogan knows now who he will face in the general election. So, so Ben Jealous is going to be the Democratic nominee. Uh, he ended up pulling away a little bit from County Executive Rusher and Baker and, and the rest of the Democratic field. I think people will will pick this race apart for some time as to what it means for Maryland. Is this a is this a change of tune for Maryland Democratic voters and what's this all about? But ultimately, the the margin between the two 
of them ended up being it was you know it was in the neighborhood of forty to thirty percent in a in a multi way field. So uh, Jell's got thirty nine point nine percent. Right. So that's I mean that's a bigger split than most uh, most of us expected. It's bigger than I expected. I think you and I were in agreement. We felt that the 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 tides were turning in Mr. Jealous's favor, and that he was probably the favorite. But we went into Tuesday without certainty about that. Uh, there was also you know a bit of a twist with with Valerie Irvin. Um, previously, you know, this this whole saga of her involvement in in the in the race as a running mate to County Executive Caminets, then running her on her own, having issues trying to get ballots reprinted with her name on them and so forth, then withdrawing from the race and throwing her support behind County Executive Baker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of people felt like, well, maybe that'll be a turning point that either closes the gap or or gets County Executive Baker back on top. Uh, turns out it wasn't the case. It wasn't enough to, to change those tides, and, and the split was pretty meaningful. So, Michael, we've said Ben Jell's pulled away with this 39.9% of the vote, certainly a significant win uh, for Ben Jealous. How much of this do you think has to do with the ability for Ben Jealous to raise money? He got some notable endorsements. He had the teachers behind him, a lot of the big unions. It seemed like County Executive Baker was never really able to get that jolt that he needed to, to raise money on the level that Jealous was raising. How much of that can we attribute uh, to this this loss for Richard Baker and the win for Ben Jealous. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know that that we can you know pull that taffy apart and necessarily say we we know what the pieces are of this puzzle. Uh, I think money played a role in the campaign, and the Baker campaign didn't have as much money as they would have liked to participate in the airwaves someplace. I mean, there are parts of the state. I think Rusher and Baker believed he would be strongest in the Metro D.C. area. Mm-hmm. Well, advertising in the Metro D.C. area generally means the Washington D.C. media market. You're spending a lot of money advertising to people who live in Washington D.C., who live in Northern Virginia, who aren't part of Maryland elections. Uh, you advertise in the Washington Post. Uh, that's the the biggest media, the print media outlet in that region. And once again, you're paying for for coverage. That that's on beyond just Prince George's County, Montgomery County, and you know the other the other Maryland jurisdictions that are kind of in that region. So, it's inherently an expensive campaign in Maryland because of our kind of unique geography mm-hmm. and and those border issues. So, yeah, it costs. There's a lot of stuff that costs money uh, to do. Um, both of these candidates got a good deal of you know public praise and endorsements. Uh, I think it might be reasonable to say that, in retrospect, Rusher and Baker's endorsements were were more of the personal type. Right. Um, that you know, someone like someone like his his next door neighbor Ike Leggett, the county executive in, in Montgomery during his time, said, "Hey, we work together. I endorse his candidacy." Uh, a number of the number of the high leadership in in Maryland's congressional delegation and and so forth came to the aid of County Executive Baker having built a relationship over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily bring cash and workers and so forth uh, in the way that some things like union endorsements or other organizational endorsements can. So let's talk about now Larry Hogan and the general election. 
this is a different candidate, this is a different political climate perhaps than we had four years ago. We have a lot of Democrats who voted for Larry Hogan in the last general election. Sure. And, and quite and frankly, they've yeah. said they're going to vote for him again. Yeah, if you, I mean, if you look at the polls and you look at approval rating for, for Governor Hogan, there's an awful lot of people who they, they may not be committed to voting for him a second time, but they sure are happy to say, I approve of the job he's doing. Right. And I think, I think poll watchers are trying to be very specific about exactly what question are you asking voters when they say something positive about the governor you know approval rating versus how does the, how does he poll versus a theoretical opponent and now a more concrete opponent those are two different things but nonetheless we know this governor is very popular shout out to Malia with the Goucher poll uh, she does great work and she certainly they break down those questions they really do right. word by word it matters what you're asking right so I think so. I guess my point is this is going to take a much different tone than we had four years ago. The national politics are different. And I think in uh, Ben Jealous's speech last night after he won the primary, he immediately started going after Hogan. There are, there's going to be uh, a much different climate. It seems like this race is going to go in a different direction. And I'm interested what Democrats are going to do. Is this going to rally the base? Are they going to get excited for Ben Jealous? Or is Larry Hogan going to remain as popular as he seems to be right now? And and maybe this is a sign of the national politics and the state politics, but certainly this is going to be a lot different than it was four years ago. I think I think that's true and it's intriguing in in a number of ways. One one of them is what happens with the sort of insider establishment who substantially drifted and gravitated to Rusher and Baker as their candidate. He was seen, I think correctly, as the choice of a lot of insiders, whether that was you know, an organizational decision or whether it was a matter that he was familiar and had, you know, accomplished things that people were impressed by. It really doesn't matter why that was the case, but he's the one who picked up an awful lot of people who are part of the high level infrastructure of the democratic party uh, with, with Mr. Jealous as the nominee now does is he able to to absorb that kind of momentum and that kind of support? Do you have the people who you know who just yesterday were out canvassing and and helping get out the vote for Rusher and Baker? Are they willing next week to you know throw those signs out, get the jealous signs out, put on that t shirt, and start knocking on doors and talking about a somewhat different vision? Right. So so that I mean that's interesting. I think on a, on a practical level. I think the other thing, just for the the discourse of what the campaign is going to look and feel like, mm-hmm. I think there's every reason to think that that this Democratic nominee is going to be more specific and and will articulate a clearer and probably a more candidly progressive vision sure. of what he thinks Maryland ought to look like and ought to do um, than Mr. Brown did four years ago. So, so, you know, now governor Hogan as a, as, as a challenger was running against the sitting, you know, sitting um, Lieutenant governor, but um, found himself articulating the vision as the outsider more so I think than Anthony Brown did four years ago. Maybe the, the shoe is going to be on the other foot to some degree. Um, That'll be that'll be different. Uh, we'll we'll probably see a different shape of Larry Hogan in this campaign. Yeah, so certainly it'll be a different campaign. And the big question is, can Ben Jealous rally the base and get all the supporters of Rashern Baker and Rich Madalino and Jim Shea and Alec Ross and others 
rallied into one party and to unite behind him because we know that voter turnout is going to be very important either way in right. this election. I mean, the, I mean, the math in Maryland, this is, you know, this is not deep political analysis, but there are more registered Democrats than there are Republicans. And it was a combination of low turnout among Democrats and some Democrats defecting to vote for the governor, uh, for the now governor, uh, but the Republican candidate, Larry Hogan. So those two factors, some combination of those two has to change for the Democrats to, to get back into the state house. I mean, Everybody's going to be focused on this. The table's set for a really interesting race. It affects a lot a lot of what we do, and it affects our county members too. It'll be fascinating. Let's make uh, just a, a quick stop here with the Comptroller and the Attorney General. Comptroller Peter Francho, Attorney General Brian Frosch, they were both unopposed in their primary election. Obviously now uh, they move on to the general election. They both got a bunch of votes, but again, they had no opponent. Right. So they move on. Yep. Mac Middleton, the chair of the Senate Finance Committee, Senator Middleton, uh, he came into the Senate in 1994. Again, he was he's the chair of the Senate Finance Committee. It's a very powerful position. He lost yesterday in what is considered a monumental upset in his District 28 primary. He lost to challenger Arthur Ellis. Ellis held a 52 to 48 edge the last time I checked. And Michael, this is certainly uh, just one of the many shakeups that we're going to see in the General Assembly when they reconvene January. Well, it's it's a big one at a lot of levels. Um, This is uh, Mac Middleton's Charles County Democrat. And as, as you mentioned, served there for an awfully long time. Um, he he came directly to the Senate after serving as the commission president in Charles County. So he was he was a county elected official. He was here in this building at Mako, serving on the legislative committee, involved in in politics and policy as a county official, and really really carried that with him through you know through twenty four years in the General Assembly. Um, he he was he was very public about reflecting back on his service in local government. He was really concerned about things like unfunded mandates. He spoke, he spoke the language of local government and carried our water on quite a number of occasions. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Mako as an organization and county governments in general, very much in, in his debt. Um, and that'll, that'll be a loss. That'll be a loss for local governments, having somebody who understood and remembered that role, um, you know, as part of his past, but also seeing where it fits as part of service delivery. Also interesting, he was sort of the power broker for so many major oh, yeah. issues, particularly over the last three years or so. He he seemed to be in the middle of everything, Michael. I mean, this guy, he, again, he's a true and true county government guy. Every time I talk to him, he, he would be able to talk about his time back uh, in Charles County and as the president of the commissioners and here at Mako on the legislative committee and just sort of letting us know that he understood where we were coming from. But he also would would take, you know, other positions into account. I think he was very fair, yeah. but he was sort of the go to guy on the floor to broker these deals between parties and bring all stakeholders to the table and work out ways to solve really, really difficult problems and issues. Right. And and, I mean, sometimes that's the role of a committee chair. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is the chair's job to stand up and defend a tricky bill. And we saw this over the last couple of years with, you know, with 
complicated and controversial legislation about employers providing sick and safe leave for their employees. And this was, this was difficult and politically complicated and just technically complicated. The, the concerns and worries of the employer community was something he took seriously, even as the bill progressed and turned into, into state law and the veto got overridden and so forth. I mean, there were lots of steps in that drama, but he was a centerpiece of all that standing up on the floor of the Senate, defending the amendments, explaining how things would work, why the committee made the choices and compromises that it did. You have to become, you have to be chapter and verse kind of person. Um, he was willing to do that, but I, I can tell you from experience, not just things from the finance committee, not just their projects that are in their subject matter, but in, you know, in years gone by, we've had land use debates that got thorny and difficult. And he was pretty routinely someone who would stand up on the floor of the Senate and, you know, you know push the button and say, I want to be heard because I'm, I'm worried about what this is going to mean for local governments. And, you know, he, he, he got a bit of a reputation as, you know, you're, you're not the county commissioner anymore, right. you know, Senator, you can move on from there. Yeah, but that was, that was a role he relished to understand what's this going to mean. I, when, when I did a comprehensive plan, it didn't look like this. What are we doing now? Um, he was, he was that sort of person. And if it meant, you know, uh, they needed to hammer out a compromise on the floor of the Senate, he was very often a person who was, you know, had the hammer in his hand making that happen. Yeah, so I would say that's probably the the big shocker of the night. Now let's move on to the chair of EHE, the Education, Health, and Environmental Affairs Committee, uh, Joan Carter Conway, who looks like she may be losing her seat uh, in Baltimore City. Again, because of all these provisional ballots, uh, really complicates things here. A lot of races have this asterisk next right. to them because yeah, and this is one of them. Yeah, right? and this yeah. is definitely one of them. And it, Michael, we may not see uh, an answer to these races until late next week because that's when the right. provisional ballots will actually be counted. Right. But it looks like so far, at least, uh, Delegate Mary Washington has a slight lead on Senator Joan Carter Conway, and this is, would be another committee chair going down should the results hold. Right. And so, I mean, that, that matters on a number of levels. Um, Joan Carter Conway had developed her own reputation as, as being sort of the arbiter in her committee. And that's a committee that has some pretty disparate subject areas. But when you, when you realize that they have a role in education policy, they have a role in healthcare and health policy, uh, they get involved in land use and environmental issues, and then a lot of other odds and ends, good government sorts of things. We were in there on things like the Open Meetings Act mm-hmm. and and uh, Public Information Act and so forth. Uh, that committee has a really big footprint. There's a lot of important stuff that happens there, and she is she is quite a ringmaster in that committee, keeping everybody in order, um, keeping the group sort of on on message and and, and on pace and so forth. Um, so yeah, if, if she ends up disappearing from the Senate leadership, uh, I mean, these things happen again, you know, this is, this is part of the political process, but, uh, with, if she disappears, uh, from, from the Maryland Senate, that'll be another lot of institutional knowledge, a lot of respect and, and, you know, sort of, I don't know, a lot, a, a lot of, a lot of leadership that that'll be lost for the Baltimore city delegation, but also for that committee. She's been there a long time. 
So we have uh, Senator Middleton, Senator, Senator Joan Carter Conway, and then let's not forget Senator Casemeyer retired this year, so he right. won't be back. So that'll yeah. be three out of the four committees potentially. We'll have to see what happens with uh, Joan Carter Conway, but three out of the four committee chairs not coming back next year, certainly significant, and it's going to lead to a major shakeup in the Senate. Yeah, the Senate, Senate's going to have dramatic turnover. We know this already, and we just added to some of it in the primary last night. And that's before we might have some some seats change hands party to party in November. But yeah, this um, is just the primary. Yeah, let's not forget <laughs> so, that either. So, but um, I mean, even built in before this primary, we knew that you, you mentioned Senator Casemeyer, the chair of the Budget and Tax Committee, uh, but um, we, we, you know, the vice chair of that committee, Rich Madeline, decided to make a run for governor. Um, the, the chair of the capital budget subcommittee, which is an awfully big deal, uh, Ed DeGrange from Anne Arundel County, he had decided to step down and leave. Um, there are leadership people across the, the, the Senate. Uh, you know, John Astle, the vice chair of Mac Middleton's committee, um, he might have been in line to become the chair had he not decided to step down himself. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a big leadership vacuum in the Senate. Um, you know, the the Senate is undergoing a big shift. Uh, what what happened to to Senator Conway apparently is is in keeping with what we saw in other Baltimore City Senate districts, uh, a real sort of youth movement, right? So yeah, we saw uh, Delegate Corey McRae defeat uh, Senator Nathaniel McFadden. Senator McFadden, another mainstay in the Senate, another member of the Budget and Taxation Committee. We just talked about them losing multiple members. Uh, now, Corey McRae is going to move from House of Delegates to the Senate. This is one that was uh, watched very carefully. A lot of people thought that could happen. And then Senator Barbara Robinson losing to Delegate Antonio Hayes. So we really did see a youth movement in Baltimore City, potentially a sweep of those three races that people were really focused on and saying, this is the youth movement. This is Baltimore City turning potentially more progressive, more youthful. And they really got the votes out. And it's just really remarkable to think about. We were talking about it earlier today, trying to figure out where everything would land and how this would all be pieced together. But really, really fascinating now to watch this transition going into 2019. Well, potentially a really meaningful shift in just the way this political body does business and what its priorities are, are going to look and feel like. And you, you can't help but think a little bit about four years ago and some things that ultimately made a real difference in the House of Delegates in the 2014 election. Um, I mean, a couple different things happened. I think it turns out in the 2014 primary, uh, given what we know now about the the people who moved in, you know, the sort of freshman class of of 2015 uh, who were elected for the first time in 14, uh, we probably saw that youth movement, um, things moving younger and to the left to some degree within the Democratic Party. And, and that got compounded in the general election in 14 when a pretty fair number of of the seats held by Democrats in areas that had been drifting red in various parts of the state, a lot of those mid, you know, those sort of, we call them blue dog Democrats, right. um, you know, longtime Democrats representing a lot of people who are registered or Republicans or have, have Republican sympathies. A lot of those seats turned over and became Republican seats. And, and suddenly a, a Democratic 
um, still, you know, more than more than a healthy majority of the House of Delegates is in the Democratic Party's hands, but they found themselves as a caucus being younger, more progressive, and honestly, a little bit less burdened by having to think about their central flank. Uh, so the House of Delegates has become a more progressive body this last term. Uh, I think most people would agree that that's more or less uh, with the outcome of the 2014 election. What we're seeing in the Senate, I don't know. It's too soon to say this is the same thing, but there are, I think there are earmarks already that, that this election is going to be awfully important for, for, you know, things happening in the Maryland Senate. Yeah, certainly some really, really, you know, major similarities from what we saw. I want you to put a pin in that because we're going to talk about the House in a second. But I do also want to mention that Senator Steve Waugh lost his primary election to Jack Bailey. Jack Bailey is a retired Maryland Natural Resources police officer. Senator Waugh, another loss to the Education, Health, and Environmental Affairs Committee. He's another guy that was sympathetic to the counties. I could always go talk to him. Um, But he had a tough primary and he was ousted by Jack Bailey. When we come back, we're going to talk about the House of Delegates. We've gone through the Senate, also a major shakeup in the House. We'll get into that. We're also going to talk about some local elections, which we know you're all waiting to hear about. We'll get into all of that and more after the break. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. This is a special edition. We are talking about the primary election as we sit here on Wednesday and we dissect what happened last night. A lot of major shakeups going on both at the state and the local level. Michael, we left off on the Senate and I asked you to hold your thought on the House. Let's now move to the House because we have another committee chair who lost his primary election, Joe Valerio. He is another mainstay. Uh, He has a major footprint in the House of Delegates, the chair of a very, very powerful committee, the Judiciary Committee. He lost his primary election. This is another one where people thought maybe this could happen, but still another chair. This is another loss of leadership that's been around for an awful long time. Right. It's a it's it's a big deal anytime a, a person who's you know among the relatively rarefied air of legislative leadership uh, either decides not to run, as is the case with you know, with with Sheila Hickson, a longtime chair of the Ways and Means Committee. She you know she stepped down as chair during this term and decided not to run again. But that that ends a long run for her. Um, you know, Joe Valerio uh, running for reelection election in a sub district, but knew there was going to be aggressive competition. I think everybody knew this was a race to watch. Uh, I mean, just as chair of the Judiciary Committee, a number of things that have been big headline issues. I mean, not that long ago, Maryland was fairly aggressive in passing gun restrictions on you know magazines and, and certain types of, of weapons and, and so forth. All that sort of stuff had to be hashed out and debated through the, the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, in more recent years, we've had a lot of attention on sort of criminal justice reform and trying to strike the right balance uh, between 
you know, administering justice and making sure we get after people who are serious offenders and violent offenders, but not necessarily engaging in mass incarceration, right. uh, particularly for uh, drug use and things of that nature. There's there's certain there's certain stripes of crime where. I think there's a there's a political consensus that maybe we're over incarcerating for. Maryland's been trying to set that needle and all that goes through the Judiciary Committee. So uh, a lot of stakeholders very very invested in in those subjects and by no means is that a done deal. We've right. we've passed big legislation, but I th- a lot of people feel like there's still more to be done on that front and um it appears that we'll be doing it in the absence of Chairman Joe Valerio who's been a fixture in judiciary for years and years. Certainly a fixture, another big loss in the House. We also had some other delegates lose their seats. Delegate Bilal Ali from Baltimore City was ousted. Delegate Angela Gibson, from also from Baltimore City. Delegates Marseille Morales and Shane Robinson, both from Montgomery County, lost their primary elections. And then Carlos Sanchez and Jimmy Tarlow, both from Prince George's County, lost their primaries. Interesting that Marseille Morales and Shane Robinson become the Montgomery County's first sitting legislators in eight years to be ousted from office. They lost their seats in District 19 and District 39. Mm. So just an interesting factoid there, uh, just Montgomery County politics. But again, this is a, a pretty big turnover and I think a tectonic shift in general uh, within the General Assembly, both within the House and the Senate seeing a lot of these primaries oust the incumbent. So we, I, I don't think we yet know whether there's any kind of uniting story. Uh, you know, it was, it was a little bit easy and a little bit convenient, particularly for those, those, those Senate seats in Baltimore city to say, well, this, this really feels like a youth movement in all three cases. These were sitting senators being challenged by, up and coming young delegates from within their district district. And you could argue that all three of the challengers were not only younger, but more progressive. If you're plotting them out on, on, on the, just the simple partisan scale, you might say this is a leftward shift. I'm not sure that the, the, the seven new um, nominees in the house are, are, you know, pro, are you know, uniformly uh, younger or more progressive or anything in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes all politics really is local. So these may have been about local issues or just, you know, unusually strong challenger candidates or, or whatnot. Um, you know, these things happen. So um, sometimes this stuff is just, is just, uh, you know, vagaries in the breeze and, and, and that does happen. But um, and these, these are relationships that come and go as part of the political cycle. Um, this is, you know, this, this too shall pass. So, so we'll, we'll have some new faces. That's uh, that's seven uh, delegates lost in the primary, all of them Democrats incidentally. So, so there, there weren't any changes in the Republican field. Um, and you know, we can talk a little bit about some of the specifics there, but I think the house of house of delegates, seven changes and a number of people who were leaving on their own who wouldn't be counted in the turnover numbers. Um, there's always a wave after each election. It gets added to in the primary. It'll get added to in the general. And there'll be 
There'll be a busload of freshman legislators come December. Uh, it's an annual tradition that the House leadership tries to get everybody together, both parties from all across the state, and do touring of places and try and do some show and tell about, you know, these are the kind of things that you're going to be dealing with, right. and things that we fund and support, and and the things that we're concerned about and so forth. So so we'll we'll see the freshman bus tour gear up in, in, in a matter of months, and there'll be plenty of people on that bus. Okay, let's shift gears from the General Assembly. Let's get into some local races. It's it's always interesting because almost all the counties are on the same election cycle. And we said in our last episode that there were going to be some really interesting races, some really close races. And we're going back again to this issue with provisional ballots. And we have two county executive races, Michael, that right now, even as we sit here on Wednesday afternoon, are too close to call. So yeah. in Montgomery County... We have uh, Blair and Elrich, who, again, very, very close, too close to call. It seems like Elrich has the slight lead the last time I checked. Yeah. But we are going to have a number of provisional ballots out, and it's likely we may not know till the end of next week. So, in, I mean, in, in Montgomery County, nominally, this is the fight for the Democratic Party nomination. Um, as a practical matter, the Democratic Party nominee has had a relatively easy time in the general election in that county. So we're not trying to count chickens before they hatch, but as a practical matter, there'll be an awful lot of people thinking and talking in Montgomery in terms of the new county executive uh, with with the 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 process in November being uh, just the follow through. So this matters an awful lot. Right. And, um, and this, you know, Montgomery is the largest jurisdiction in the state. It's the largest economic power in the state. We see, um, you know, we see the political influence and the economic influence of Montgomery being really large and casting a really big shadow over everything we do as, as, you know, as we've been talking on this podcast about things like education policy and tax issues and so forth. Uh, the contours of Montgomery County affect all of that stuff in the political realm. And, and if, you know, if more than more, you know, they're, they're in the neighborhood of one out of five or, or so. Uh, so Marylanders are Montgomery County residents. That's, that's as it ought to be, I guess. Yeah. There were so many candidates running for County executive and for this to be so close and for us not to know potentially until the end of next week certainly is fascinating. We have a similar situation in Baltimore County. We can start with the Republican primary where uh, Al Redmer ousted Pat McDonough by a fairly significant margin, yeah, it was, 55 it was, to 45. Yeah, it was a, a little bit of a surprise that he was able to win fairly easily. There was one publicly distributed poll that came out, I, I guess it was two or three weeks ago, uh, that showed Delegate McDonough with a, a slight lead. And I think maybe that poll itself was an eye-opener Um some people may have thought that that former delegate Redmer was the 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 obvious candidate and maybe that he was he would be the easy winner and right. maybe I don't need to do a fundraiser maybe I don't need to to go out and carry signs or or knock on doors and so forth then a poll comes out 2 or 3 weeks before the election and shows you know, the, what do you know? Surprise, surprise, the candidate you thought was going to be the winner is, is behind by a handful of points. Maybe that was sort of the, you know, the, the, the kick in the rear that, that got that campaign, um, you know, back on track and back energized. But, uh, former delegate Redmer, he's, he's a member of the Hogan administration and, and served under Governor Ehrlich as well, has private sector experience, but also has worked on 
you know, insurance issues and in the financial sector, um, he'll be a, a credible and and I think you know uh, I think he'll be a uh, a an efficient candidate. He'll be targeted and thoughtful, and he he had a reputation as a as a good talker uh, here as a delegate in Annapolis. So he'll make a credible candidate come November against well, we don't know. This is another race that is too close to call. Johnny Olszewski, who is a former delegate. And Jim Broshin are separated by 361 votes. So Council member, you know, Vicky Allman, so Vicky is, right is within is within, I think, you know, around one percentage point yep. of of Olszewski, who who nominally has the neat, the lead right now. Which which um, I think surprised a lot of people too. Nothing against Johnny right, O, but right. the polls that we had seen. The last one that we had seen had Brochin pretty comfortable lead, and right. then Johnny O was sort of it's trailing. A, a, a layer back, yeah. So as those results came in last night, I was getting texts saying, oh, my gosh. What's going on? What, right? what is, is, can you yeah. believe it? Right, and and for, for a while, I, I think – I think a lot of people were thinking the same thing that well maybe the maybe what we're seeing these first precincts reporting are from just a particular part of the county right. and maybe it's from you know sort of the Dundalk area where where, where Johnny O you know served a couple of terms as delegate and his dad was on the on the county council and so forth so maybe that name's carrying him in certain places and and this is kind of a, a mirage mm-hmm. and then over time it became clear no it's it's really is a super tight three-way race um i don't think that was expected it wasn't what i thought we would see but uh it has made for it made for an awfully late night for a lot of people in and around baltimore county um and to be honest in both of these races i i think the the difference between the top two candidates in montgomery county and the top two candidates in baltimore county on the democratic side you're not just talking about Two, two fish that are swimming in the same direction up the same creek. Um, there's a pretty meaningful difference in ideology and approach uh, between John Olszewski and Jim Broshin. Absolutely. And, and I think you, you can say the same thing about Mark Kollerich and David Blair, uh, that you know the, the vision for Montgomery County or the vision for Baltimore County is substantially at stake. In Montgomery County, you're probably talking about who's going to be the next county executive. I think the Democratic nominee will at least be a mild favorite in Baltimore County. They've elected several in a row. So as, as a practical matter, um, there's a lot on the line that's going to come down to instead of thousands upon thousands of votes, it's going to be hundreds or even scores or even handfuls. Fascinating stuff. And, and I have to say, too, that even though Redmer beat McDonough 55 to 45 percent. That's the closest uh, Republican primary for county executive we've seen in Baltimore County in many, many yeah, cycles. Yeah, long time. Yeah. yeah, long time. So in Prince George's County, the Democratic primary there, also very likely to be the next county executive. That's how Prince George's County normally goes, just like Montgomery County. Alsel Brooks, Michael, has secured the Democratic nomination for county executive in Prince George's County. This is one... Uh, this was a race that was closely watched. This got pretty contentious there for a while, but in the end, she comes out on top. Angela Alsobrook serving as she was a, a, a little bit of a long shot candidate to become state's attorney just four years ago, mm-hmm. and has an interesting story on that front. She didn't show up with the name recognition, recognition, and a whole lot of big momentum and that sort of thing, but uh, but ran an impressive race, and and I think you know, I think the 
this vote is a verification that that her term as state's attorney and the message that she's been delivering about public safety and crime and so forth in Prince George's County has resonated with an awful lot of people. I mean, this was this was a, as I recall, I'm trying to remember six or seven right. way race nominally, but but she was up against some credentialed opposition. Yet Senator um, Muse, so a state sitting state senator who has who has you know tried this race for county executive before, um, but but nonetheless has a great deal of name recognition both as a senator and as a minister, right? Um, but uh, but then a, a former congressional representative, uh, Donna Edwards from from Maryland District Four, right. you know, took took a swing at the U.S. Senate seat and and now d- gave a run for for county executive where her district was almost was you know, the overwhelming share of her old district was uh, was in Prince George's County, so she had big name recognition in Prince George's. Uh, this wasn't a far fetched race for her to engage either. Um, Angela also Brooks made quick work of this and came away not just with a win, but I think with, you know, with a a lot of momentum coming from it. Pretty impressive. Um, You know, like you said, four years ago, no, not many people knew her in Prince George's County and she beat some pretty heavy competition to secure this nomination for county executive. Let's now, Michael, talk about uh, some, some other local races and, um, Bill Valentine and Jerry Walker, these are both two guys that are in MAKO leadership. These are county government guys to their core. Bill Valentine from Allegheny County and Allegheny County Commissioner, and Jerry Walker, who is the 2018 MAKO president, Anne Arundel County uh, County Councilman. Uh, Commissioner Valentine was defeated in the Republican primary for his commissioner seat, and Jerry Walker was defeated uh, running for a delegate in the 33rd delegation, the three incumbents were able to survive there. Michael, these guys, you know, we can talk about them all day. They're, they've been a part of Mako for a long time. We can go through their resume. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's pages and pages. But um, talk a little bit about why it's so difficult to win a race when you've been in county government for a long time and you've taken those tough votes. What makes it difficult to to win an election after you've sat in that chair and had to make those difficult votes? I I think one of the easiest jobs in politics is being the person who doesn't actually need to make decisions, but can just sort of stand at the back of the room and point fingers when you think something's being done wrong. Right. And that is, I mean, that's the, it's a time honored tradition of, of politics. This is not exclusive to Maryland and not exclusive to one party or anything. This is, this is a practical matter of doing the public work that, Along the way, especially when you're in local government, if you're a county commissioner or if you sit on a county council, you know, you're being asked not as a member of some huge body where there's some amorphous leadership who's really making all the decisions and you're being asked to vote on the margin here or there, but you're on a three member board of commissioners or a seven member county council. You're being asked all the time to make a decision about taxes and the budget, to make it, you know, personnel decisions or what are our county priorities for schools or for public health, get involved in land use decisions. People always get fired up. About 
about land use stuff, whether you're expanding or restricting, you know, people's ability to use land in certain ways, it's always going to fire up some part of the community. Uh, you are constantly generating fodder. You're constantly in the spotlight. Yeah. And, and you're constantly generating something that somebody can be upset about. And right. you can make 19 straight decisions that most everybody's happy with. And then you make one decision that half the community is upset about because something needed to be done. And now they've got a bone to pick with you. Right. Uh, it's, it, it's just the nature of what the people who make this kind of commitment to public service go through. But I think, I think you see some of that, you know, happening in, in races every four years we're reminded that that can happen. I'm, mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, Bill Valentine, County commissioner running for, for reelection in Allegheny County, the County commissioners run at large. So this isn't a matter of being, you know, stuck in a district with a particular opposition. Right. I mean, he ran fourth in a big field and only three advance. Uh, he had a credentialed opponent who ended up running along with two other incumbents. Mm-hmm. So, so he's, you know, J- Bill Valentine's the, the odd man out there. Um, but I mean, to do it, to do a quick reflection on his commitment here. Uh, Bill was the sort of guy who, who understands how this game works. He had previously been prior to being a County commissioner. um, He's a contractor guy and he, he understood that kind of world. He was involved with a separate group, uh, associated builders and contractors. And so he was, he was a a former leader, I think maybe even a former president of Maryland ABC, Mm -hmm. but had, had, had kind of walked the walk of understanding following legislation in an being part of a group that weighs in on policy issues and knowing, you know, time to call your state senator about this issue and that right, sort of thing. Right. So he already he already spoke that language. Um, that's awfully valuable for Mako to have people walk in the door who are like that. Uh, for him to rise, become a member of our legislative committee, uh, then on the Mako board of directors. Um, it's it's the kind of commitment we ask of you know we can't ask of everybody, but you can you know we we get sixteen members on a board of directors and ask them you know extra time extra meetings while while we're at the conference and some people are going to be having a good old time we need to be having meetings and and sessions and so forth. Um, he was always. You know, basically reliably the first one in the room for our morning meetings. If we had a meeting at eight, he's there at about seven ten. And he's come and <laughs> a lot of time he'd be driving from Allegheny County. Sure. And he'd be the first one here in Annapolis right. meeting. And, and he's, I mean, yeah, the long drives, a lot of time. Um, he was a natural when it was time for Mako to appoint a, a person to represent the smaller jurisdictions as part of the Kerwin commission, the group we've been talking about looking at all these school funding issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Valentine, was the vice chair of Mako's education committee. So he's well suited to talk about these topics. He's got a perspective from working with other counties. Right. And I mean, the guy doesn't miss a meeting. Never, I mean, he, he never, never. so he, you know, he hauls all the way down to Annapolis to be there for all this sort of stuff, gives us the full lowdown of what the things that we missed when we're covering different work groups and so forth. Yeah. Uh, you can't ask for more commitment than, than what he's been willing to, to deliver for Mako and for the other counties. So, so he'll, He'll really be missed in these corners. Bill Valentine and Jerry Walker certainly will be missed. They're both in leadership here at Mako, but that's the way it goes. Those those are elections. Yeah. And Jerry's situation is is different. Um, In Anne Arundel County, the council has term limits. He was already at the end of his second term, so he was term limited out. Right. Uh, There was, you know, 
odd circumstances gave him the opportunity to serve this year as the Mako president, which we've enjoyed. I think he's enjoyed. Um, I, I hope that didn't compromise his time to be out on the on the campaign trail and so forth. But he was leaving county service anyway. Right. Uh, he was pursuing a seat in District 33 in the House of Delegates. But that's a tough haul to try and run in a in a district where there are three incumbents all seeking reelection. Right. It wasn't a matter of there being one or two open seats and you throw your hat in the ring because there seems to be an opportunity. Right. Um, also, you know, Jerry had the had the geography challenge of his current council district does not overlap terribly well with District 33, so he had to go out and knock on an awful lot of doors for people who had never seen his name right. on a ballot before. Right, which you know, he so, did, by the way. Yeah, he 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 knocked on a on 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 a, on a huge number of doors along the way, and and you know put it put in a lot of shoe leather. But uh, as a as a practical matter, um, transitioning from local government to the state level is easiest when the name recognition benefits you. And I think you know something like two thirds of his new district right. was new to him. So he had a tough road, tough road to hoe. But but I, I think also faced those things we just mentioned of you spend all that time in local government and you're making judgments about land use and you talk about what are we going to fund the school budget and that's going to make somebody upset. Well, what are we going to do with taxes? That's going to make somebody else upset. Uh, along the way, uh, there were a variety of things that people could raise and say, well, Jerry Walker voted for this or Jerry Walker opposed that. And uh, he had a longer list of things like that for someone to talk about than probably really anybody in that multi-way campaign, including the sitting delegates um, who, who really don't get put on the spot in the same way that local officials do. Yeah, for the reasons that you mentioned before. They're a member of a much bigger body where a lot of people have the perception that leadership is making the decisions anyway. When you're in local government, the spotlight is on you and all everything you do is going to be scrutinized. Speaking of the Anne Arundel County Council, John Grasso, another Anne Arundel County Councilman, is running for state Senate. He won his Republican primary. That was another race that people yeah. were watching. Yeah, not without a fight. Not yeah. without a fight for I, sure. It was it was very close. And now he will go on to face uh, current delegate Pam Beidle. Who herself is a former Anne Arundel County Council member. So graduates of the county council uh, all over in Annapolis. So yeah, that'll be the District 32 mm -hmm. State Senate race. And, uh, and that'll Grasso, be, yeah, Beidle. And that'll be, that'll definitely be on a lot of people's list of, you know, ones to watch in November. Um, that's, you know, that's a district currently held by a Democrat. Democrat, um, Ed DeGrange, we mentioned earlier, uh, deciding to leave after a number of years in the in the Maryland Senate. Uh, but that'll be that'll be a hotly contested one where the Republican Party will be looking for a, a pickup opportunity. Let's get into some other folks from local government here. Um, I want to touch on Jen Terraza, Howard County Council member, won her Democratic primary. She will join uh, Vanessa Atterbury and Shane Pendergrass as the Democratic nominees. That's great to see her advancing uh, in that House right. race. And that was an, another case of she was term limited, but found an opportunity that there was, you know, there was an opening in that, um, in that district. And so, so that, that's a, a different circumstance than, uh, than what Jerry Walker faced. But so, so she gets to advance in Howard County, um, along with, uh, Courtney Watson, who's, who's removed one year, uh, but a former colleague of hers on the Howard County council, uh, Courtney Watson also had success last night. Yeah. So Michael, let's talk about Charles County because there was a significant development in Charles County. Commission president, um, is, 
is, is a, a seat you run for. In some, in some of the counties, uh, everybody just sort of runs by district, mm-hmm. and, and you take turns being the the chair or the president. That's a pretty common structure across counties. In a handful of places, the com- the commission president is a seat you specifically run for and hold for the four years. That's the case in Charles County, and and it's a it's a seat that's vested with some extra authorities, even though it's a commissioner form of government. Right. Um, Delegate uh, Peter Murphy ran for and won the seat as commission president has been serving there this last these last four years uh his rival uh reuben collins um from four years ago um then delegate murphy now commissioner murphy beat reuben collins four years ago reuben collins turned the tables on him and won the primary last night uh, relatively handily it was right. a th- it was a three-way primary uh but but reuben collins comes away as, as the winner he um he will be a strong favorite to to serve as commission president for the next Next term, and we've seen we've seen an interesting conflict in um, in Charles County over the last couple of terms. Uh, don't know if it'll continue. It sort of depends on what the roster of eventual county commissioners looks like. But the last couple of turns, even as all the commissioners have been from the Democratic Party, right. we've seen a lot of struggle over land use issues and some sort of governing philosophy matters have have left that a county with i don't think this is a controversial observation with a lot of political divisions so um some turnover this election just because one one commissioner decided not to run one commissioner decided to run for delegate uh deborah davis a sitting commissioner after two terms uh she succeeded in her run Mm -hmm. in the primary so so she'll be in district uh, 28 um uh, running for delegate and, and a favorite to win there but uh, so we already had some turnover built in with Reuben Collins potentially on the way back in as commission president. We could see big change both in number of new people, but also in sort of governing philosophy right. with with the term of county commissioners ahead. So that's an area that a lot of people will be watching for, you know, what might that mean for their land use plan? What might it mean for their transportation priorities and so forth? There have been pretty deep philosophical divisions in, in Charles County in this election uh, may have um, had some play in that too. So that fits into our theme here, talking about some of these races that really could change the direction of, of local governments and their philosophies. And I want to touch on a county where we see constant change in local government, and that's Queen Anne's County. They had a very interesting primary there last night, the Republican and Democratic primaries, but very, very close races. And Michael, tell us about Queen Anne's County and why it's so significant. You've been around over the years. You've seen this government switch hands multiple times. It's very difficult to get elect, reelected in Queen Anne's County, is right. it not? Yeah, this is this is this is my my sixth full election cycle with with make, serving with Mako, and um, I, I think if it turns out that Queen Anne's County actually reelects one or two of its commissioners, that will swell the list of people that I've seen in my time at Mako get elected twice in Queen Anne's County from I think a grand total of one wow. to maybe two or three. So we have uh, Jim Moran, who is the at-large commissioner. He currently holds a lead of 25 votes over his challenger in the Republican primary again. 
with that asterisk because we still have these provisional ballots that are out. And then uh, Stevie Wilson is also uh, holding a lead in his primary. I think he has a bit more of a substantial lead. But but again, every commissioner race for those sitting commissioners there was very, very close. We're talking about 100 votes down to 25 votes separating these candidates in the primaries. But why is Queen Anne's County? (laughs) I, I think it's because in that county there is such a an ideological, you know, difference between these candidates when it comes to growth or no growth. Yeah. Some counties, it's, it's about, are you a Democrat or Republican? That's the kind of county where you're a growth or a no growth person. Throw in the beach traffic and the mm-hmm. Bay Bridge. And that's just like a, a, a number of issues there that have a tremendous impact on local government and on the ability to get reelected in local government. Yeah, I, th- I think that's probably the the hit, hitting the nail on the head with the, the specific issues in, in Queen Anne's County. There's constant growth pressure there. A lot of it is centered in Queen, in, in Kent Island right. in particular. And so that's all around water. It's environmentally sensitive. It makes for you know, a big target for people who are anti-growth to say this is where we should draw the line and so right. forth. And that invariably happens in that county. Um, all five county commissioners there right now are Republicans. Uh, a lot of these close races are within the Republican primary. Mm-hmm. But this is a county where the general election is going to be in play for multiple districts as well. So this isn't an all-red county where everything's going to be done in June. Right. Uh, this is one where we'll, we'll, we'll still be watching Queen Anne's County come November. So, Michael, we have talked about a number of interesting races We've seen a number of seats changing hands within local government. I, I think we're officially down to three counties. Three. And it's um, it's a, a Garrett County, our farthest west county, with three county commissioners, right. all of whom advanced in their primaries. Uh, Worcester County have seven commissioners, uh, but all of them are on track. Um, and so in the middle is Kent County right. in the in the mid eastern shore with three commissioners. Um, that'll be a they're split right now party wise. So that will um, all the incumbents won in their respective primaries, but we could see some change in the general there. So who knows? We might we might have uh, you know we, we might have uh, change in every single jurisdiction uh, after after November is is said and done. Again, I think we undersold. Um, the amount of uh, of change that we were going to see in this primary. So, I mean, I mean, you have this this little bit of mystery hanging over. I, to be to be honest, the, the races in Baltimore County and Montgomery County might be sufficiently close that we would be talking about recounts and challenges now anyway. Right. So, but the fact that we know there's there are you know presumably baskets full of of provisional ballots in each of those jurisdictions that are going to need to be assessed and weighed and presumably in, in most cases counted. So that's coming anyway. Um, that leaves us with a, a TBA and a, and a good deal of stuff. Uh, close races in other jurisdictions across the state that we haven't been able to get to. Uh, the race for, for county council in Talbot County was really close. Really close. Again, that's um, like 30 votes. <laughs> yeah, there's a handful of votes separating out and in and just barely more in and so forth. So that's another one that, that potentially could shift based on, based on provisionals. Uh, 
we, we could see a few things where you have to go back and, and make an oops type correction after right. the provisionals are all done. So an extra wrench in the works, but that's the nature of politics. There, you know, you, you're only, you're, you're only entitled to what the voters are willing to offer you. And that comes in four year bites. Absolutely. It does. So Michael, I know that I need some more caffeine to get through the rest of my evening. I'm sure you do too. We were up late last night, so let's leave it there. We will be back next week with the Conduit Street podcast. This was a special edition. Again, you can find all of our local government primary election coverage on our blog. Just go to conduitstreet.mdcounties.org. You'll see everything there. We've, we've broken down races from across the state. So if you're looking for anything more that we didn't get to today, that's where you'll find it. Until next week, this is Michael and Kevin signing off. Have a great day, and we will talk to you soon.